Hey, good morning, faith family. We want to say hello to those in our live venue as well. If you got a Bible, start making your way uh, to the book of Philippians. That's where we're going to be this morning, the next uh, couple weeks. Hey, it's good to be back. Really, really good to be back. Missed you guys the last couple weeks. Co- took just kind of a inhale for the, the big fall that's coming up. In fact, I think you're stuck with me about the rest of the year, so I'm sorry about that. Uh, but we got a big fall coming up, a lot of exciting stuff that's going to be going on the next several weeks and months here. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about the Lakeville campus. Like if you're alive and around here at all, you have heard about the Lakeville campus. Uh, That's going to be launching the first weekend of October. We're going to be doing some soft launch over the next couple of weeks. And just let me say, if you're here and you're in Lakeville and you're still off the fence, I'm officially pushing you off the fence, okay? Uh, and we want to say, if you're in Lakeville, to commit to be a part of our Lakeville launch. Um, and uh, that'll be starting in, in October. So, um, uh, so now would be the time to commit to that, all right? It'd be helpful. And we're excited. I think we have well over 200 people that are going to be involved in that launch. So that's really exciting, Faith Family. It really, really is. We got stuff coming up like um, Financial Peace University that starts next Sunday night. It's going to be running throughout the fall, 6 o'clock on Sunday evenings. Highly, highly recommend and encourage you to be a part of that. This is kind of a church-wide emphasis that we're doing this fall, and we want to encourage you to be a part of that. If you are going to be and you haven't let us know that yet, uh, let us know that today because we want to make sure we have the materials ready for you to start next week. So important that you do that, and we're, we're thrilled about that. I've got a sermon series starting in October called The Search that we're pumped about. we got ministries kicking off, men's, women's, youth, children, missional communities, all kind of stuff's happening. So uh, I'm ready to go. Are you? Good. Let's do this. And all of this is because we want to expand our gospel impact here around the South South Metro and literally around the world. That's why we exist, is to see lives transformed by the power of the gospel. But now in order for us to, to really engage in all this, we have to commit. We have to commit. And that's why the next four weeks I want to talk to you and challenge you from the book of Philippians in a series that we're calling Commit. And what we're going to do, it's interesting, we're actually going to do a book study, go through Philippians, but it's also going to be a theme study where we're going to use the book of Philippians to show us images and pictures of what it looks like to really be committed to Christ and committed to what he's called us to. So let's start that now, Philippians chapter 1. If you're able to stand, please do so as we honor the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 1, we're not going to have time each week to look at every verse. We're going to do one chapter a week, and it's probably only going to be like one passage out of that particular chapter. And this morning starts with verse 12. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he's in a a prison in Rome. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that 
I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, for that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is God's Word. Please pray with me. Uh, Father, we bow now and we ask that you would come and speak to us, that you would speak to us through these words, that we would see Paul's example here in Philippians 1, and we would be very challenged about our own walk with you. Uh, Lord, help us be very honest when it comes to where we are with you, and help us to really understand what it means to follow Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. God's people said amen. You may be seated. Joe and Grace uh, met through a mutual friend, and really from day one, it looked like they were the perfect match. Grace was everything Joe ever wanted. Uh, She was beautiful. She was caring. Um, She was fun to be around. She was always there when he needed someone. In fact, that's all Joe could think about. It's, It's the only one he could ever think about was Grace. That was three years ago. Three years have passed and things aren't quite the same. Don't misunderstand. Joe still enjoys the comfort of grace. He still enjoys the familiarity he has with grace. But that spark, it's gone. In fact, he's not even sure that he finds her quite as attractive as he once did, and he's beginning to resent all the time that she wants to spend together. And so one evening, um, Grace asked to define the nature of their relationship, and Joe blew up. I'm here, aren't I? Isn't that enough for you? You see... Joe wants to be with Grace. He's just not ready to commit. And honestly, he's not sure if he'll ever be. That example that I just gave you is actually an example that comes out of a book from Joshua Harris. It's an example that really, I think, describes the kind of relationship we find common in our culture. The kind of relationship that people want where it's a weekend activity, but no long-term commitment. You get the benefits of a relationship without the burden of any kind of responsibility. Uh, You get the need for social interaction met without ever having to really be known. But what's interesting is that this example that Harris gives isn't talking about romantic relationships. Though that's true and certainly applies, he actually uses it as a metaphor of how many Christians approach their relationship to Christ. Hence, the relationship with grace. The idea is we we, we want grace. We want to experience grace. We want our Sunday morning reminder of grace, but what we don't want is to commit. 
Why is it, faith family, please hear me this morning, why is it that people have a tendency to push back on the idea of commitment, particularly when you're at church? There are some of you here that you're like, don't talk about giving, don't talk about serving, don't talk about anything that would require commitment from me. Why is that? In fact, I want us to have a a little conversation this morning as to why we think that way when the reality is you already know in every other area of your life you fully accept the reality of commitment. Think, for instance, if you want to be healthy. Right now, this is the audience participation part of the sermon. So when I point to you, I want you to say as loud as you can the word commit. Okay, so let's try it. You know that you can't be healthy if you don't to eating healthy. Even if it's stuff that you don't want to eat, it may not be things you like to eat, but you know that in order to be healthy, you have to to be healthy. Or what if you want to be like a good athlete or good at sports? You know that you have to to exercise. You've got to commit to train and work out. I don't know why they felt like I only needed a five-pound dumbbell. I think they're making a statement about me, but that's all right. But you know if you're an athlete, you cannot get where you want to go as an athlete if you don't commit. Or what about, for instance, uh, uh, with, when it comes to academics, right? How many of you show of hands are in school, right? You don't have to be ashamed about it. It's all right. Raise your hand, right? You know that you cannot do well at school if you do not. You've got to go to class. I know, all right? The thought. You actually have to read the books. You actually have to do the work. And some of you are like, so that's what went wrong, right? I didn't... <laughs> I didn't do any of that, right? You know that you can't succeed academically if you don't commit. What about uh, how many of you show of hands have a job? Okay, there, there you go. You know that you cannot do well at your job if you don't. You got to show up for work. You got to work hard. If there's a specific skill or trade that you have, you have to continue to develop that if you want to succeed. You can't be good at your work if you don't commit. What about uh, when it comes to our finances? Shameless plug for financial peace, all right? You know, listen, you can't get to where you want to be financially if you don't You can't just spend here and spend there and on this and on that and have no idea where your money's going, wake up 20 years later and expect to have something. You've got to have a budget. You've got to be disciplined. You've got to commit. What about when it comes to being a parent? How many of you are parents? Show of hands. Yeah, you know that to be a good parent, you have to commit. You got to get outside and throw the ball. You got to get down and play house and dolls. You got to teach. You got to instruct. I mean, anybody say amen? Like to be a parent, you've got to commit a lot of time. At least if you want to be a good one, you've got to commit. Last one, what about when it comes to our relationships or say, for instance, uh, um, a married life? Anybody married? Right? You know that in order to have a healthy relationship, you have to commit. Anybody ever been to a wedding? I hope you showed up for yours, all right? <laughs> but you know that at a wedding, they, they do this thing called vows. What are vows? They're a commitment to 
to one another. And I could keep going on and on, but I, I think this makes the point, and here's the point. Why is it, honestly, 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 why is it that you fully understand that every other area of your life requires commitment in order for you to develop and advance, and yet when it comes to the most important thing in life, namely your walk with God, you want to push back when we start talking about commitment? In fact, I would say it's the most important thing in life and therefore the commitment to that is much more important than the commitment to this. And these are important things. The point is, Everything in your life is saying, if you want to advance, if you want to go somewhere, if you want to succeed, you've got to commit. How much more when it comes to your relationship with Christ? I mean, seriously. But Pastor, you don't understand. If I, if I really like took reading the Bible seriously, I'd like have to get up early. No, no, no. If I really took seriously coming to church more than just coming to a service and that being it, but like I actually got involved in things, do you know what that would do to my weekly schedule? If I started taking sin seriously and started cultivating healthy habits in my life, do you know what that would do to my lifestyle? If I started giving, if I started going, if I started serving, do you know how far outside my comfort zone I would be? And here's my spiritual response to you. And? And? What do you think this is? Tennis? Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. Don't tell me i got to get up early. Because you can't get where God calls you to be if you don't commit. And commitment, just like in all these areas in life, will cost something. But boy, is it worth the cost. Listen to what Jesus says. So you know that I'm not just making this up. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 22, he's asked about what's the most important thing. And Jesus says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. In other words, you're called not to love God half-heartedly. You're called not to date grace. You're called to be committed with all that you are. And Luke chapter 14 Beginning of verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. And you say, I thought Jesus was about love. What Jesus is saying here is you cannot come to me with any other loyalty. Your loyalty, your commitment to me must be greater than any other relational commitment in your life. If not, next phrase, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? Whether he has enough to complete it otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. And then here's Jesus' kind of conclusion statement, verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my 
disciple. You see, I think there's a point when we actually have to start having an honest conversation about what it means to follow Christ. Which means we're going to have to say things like this that aren't that comfortable. If you're not all in with Jesus, you may not be in with Jesus. Because you can't date grace. Grace comes with commitment. It comes with a cross. And that, friends, is exactly, I mean, to the T, what we see in Paul's life at the beginning of Philippians. And you need to hear my heart this morning, because most of you know, like, I hate legalism. I mean, have you heard that before? Legalism makes me want to just throw up. It makes me so sick. So here's what I'm not saying. Because this is what some of you have heard if you've experienced church in your background. Are you listening? It's this. The more committed you are, the more God will love you. The more committed you are, the better Christian you'll be. That is not what I'm saying. That's anti-gospel. If you know Jesus, He can't love you anymore. He already loves you with every ounce of His love in Christ. Here's what I am saying. You can't experience grace and not commit. You cannot experience the grace of God. And what comes with that is a desire to be committed to Him. Not as just a part of your life, but as all of your life. So these next few moments, what I want to show you in this passage of Philippians 1 is how, the, how Paul is absolutely committed to Christ. And because of that all-in total commitment that he has to Christ, he begins to see all of his life as an opportunity to serve. Right here, because you need to get this. I'm going to be using language like gospel ministry, and I don't mean vocational ministry. I don't mean being apostle. I mean this. Paul is so committed to Christ. Are you with me? Say yes. He's so committed to Christ, he sees all of his life as an opportunity to serve. Let me show that to you. Notice, first of all, in verse 12, Paul here is committed He is committed to gospel ministry that is serving Jesus in all of his life, even in personal suffering. So suffering does not, he's so committed to Jesus that suffering does not make that commitment go away. He's not going to walk away or run away just because times get hard because he's committed. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me. Now stop right there because I want you to feel the intensity of that. The best way that I can bring you into this text is to say this. Imagine that you have a son, and some of you don't have to imagine because you do. Imagine you have a son that's serving in the military overseas, and you have not heard from him in quite some time. Imagine that you have a daughter that has gone off to college, and you have not heard from her in at least a a month or more. Maybe you have a, a, a spouse that's in an automobile accident, and you have not received the call yet to know what their condition really is. How would you respond in those moments? You would be anxious. You would be, be with great anticipation waiting to hear from your loved one. Well, that's exactly what the Philippians are doing here when Paul says, for what has happened to me, they anxiously want to know what has happened to Paul. Why? 
Paul, 10 years before this letter, established the church in Philippi. It was on his second missionary journey. Some of you will remember that from Acts chapter 16. Uh, Paul didn't want to go to Macedonia, uh, but he receives a vision from a man to go to Macedonia. God had closed all the other doors, and so he goes. They don't have a synagogue, which is Paul's normal pattern to go in a synagogue, tell the Jewish leaders how they're missing the whole point of the Old Testament, which is Jesus, get beaten up, run out of town, and start a church. That's pretty much how it happened. He comes to Philippi, to Macedonia, and there's no synagogue. So he finds a Bethmore Bible study down by the river, and he proclaims the gospel to them, and Lydia gets saved. Do you remember this? We preach through the book of Acts, so tell me you remember, all right? At least make me feel good. Right after Lydia, there's a slave girl who's demon-possessed that comes to faith in Christ. And then Paul gets put in prison because people don't like all the commotion he's causing in, in the community. And there's an earthquake. The jailer's convinced that Paul has escaped. He's about to take his own life. And Paul says, hey, we're still here. The jailer comes back. Paul witnesses to the jailer. The jailer gets saved, and they baptize his entire family. And that's how the Philippian church was established. Well, then Paul leaves. He's gone for a few years, and then in Acts chapter 20, he comes back. Then he leaves again. This is Paul's normal routine. He's a missionary. He's planting churches all over. But this time when he leaves, he ends up in Jerusalem. I'm going somewhere. Hang tight. He goes to Jerusalem, and he gets imprisoned. And they put him on a ship bound for Rome, where he's going to stand trial for his life. And on the way, he goes through a storm. Um, the, the sailors on board threaten his life, the soldiers. Uh, he's shipwrecked. And then some of you will remember that he gets bitten by a snake before he finally arrives in Rome. And remember, at that point, I'm done. I mean, it's, I, I love you, Lord, but if snakes come with this, no thank you. He finally gets to Rome, and now he's in prison, and the email comes. The letter is written to the Philippian church. And this man they love so much, this pastor they love so dearly, this missionary who has been committed to them since their very beginning writes them this letter, and they want to know, Paul, how are you? How has all of this turned out? Next phrase. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Everything that I've gone through, including the snake, the shipwreck, and the beating, and the jail, and all the suffering that has come into my life has served to advance the gospel. It's been an opportunity to do ministry. That's not how I would have written a letter to you. I get trapped and I write you a letter. The letter sounds like this. The flight was delayed for 30 minutes. It was horrible. And we went to eat and the food was served and it was cold. It was the most miserable night of my life. And somewhere through it all, I lost my iPhone. And and just all the suffering, if you only knew what it was like, dear Bereans, to go through what I'm going through, wouldn't you be tempted to do that? And that's with stuff that we complain about like that. Imagine real prison. 
and real, you may die, and real snakes, and real suffering. But here's the point. Here's the point I'm trying to make to you. You gotta get it. You gotta get it. It's this. Paul is so committed to Jesus that he sees all of his life as an opportunity to serve Jesus. You don't do that if you're half-hearted. If you're only in this to date grace and not actually commit, when suffering comes, you're gone. But not Paul. Paul's able to say, I'm in. I've been in since day one because I'm in with Jesus. And that commitment to him allows me to see suffering as an opportunity to serve him. Let me ask you this. What is it this morning in your life that's the easiest thing for you to complain about? And maybe it's everything from like an inconvenience, you know, a flight delay, to real, real suffering. I mean, real suffering. What is the thing in your life right now that would be easy for you to just go ballistic over? Hillary becomes president. Trump becomes president. Roger Thompson becomes president. Whatever, right? Whoever becomes president. Would that devastate you? It will if your commitment is to a political party. It won't devastate you if your commitment's to Jesus. Because whatever's going on in the culture around us is an opportunity to serve Jesus. I mean, you, like, that's the real deal. Your, your child is born with Down syndrome. You haven't found your dream job yet. You so want to be married and yet you're still single. Only until you are committed to Jesus can you see your prison as your mission. But when your life is committed to Jesus, only then you're able to see whatever is going on. I am able through tears, through suffering. You think Paul wants to be in prison? But yet he's able to see, here's what I rejoice in. Let me tell you, Philippians, what all this has meant for me. The gospel has advanced. More ministry has happened. In fact, look at two things that happened as a result of my prison, verse 13, the first, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, here's one ministry thing that came out of my suffering. Non-believers have heard the gospel. I'll put it to you this way. I love Paul's perspective. He is, in essence, saying this. Uh, I am not chained to a guard. A guard is chained to me. You get that? And guess what? Every four hours, I get a new one. And guess what? That guy, whether he likes it or not, has to listen to for four hours. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Let me tell you about what happened in Athens. Let me tell you about what happened in Corinth. Let me tell you what happened in Ephesus. I'm not chained to them. They're chained to me. You're not going to get a Roman guard to go to church. So God brought the church to the Roman guard. That's a whole new way of viewing your life. You want to know what's happened to me, Philippians? I'll tell you what's happened to me. The gospel has advanced here in prison. 
in my chains. My prison has been my mission. And because of that, lost people, unbelievers have heard the gospel. Now, this is not an excuse to go out today and get arrested. All right? I don't want you to say, woohoo, let's go get arrested for Jesus. All right? But it is to say, if Christians were exempt from cancer, who would testify to Jesus in the cancer ward? If Christians didn't know the pain of losing loved ones, who would testify to the hope of Jesus at the funeral? And in that sense, you will be sent to prison. And if you're not committed to Jesus in that moment, you'll waste the opportunity suffering provides that you'll never get in comfort. Unbelievers have heard the gospel, but that's not the only outworking or result of my suffering. Believers have been encouraged in the gospel. Verse 14, and most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That's a whole sermon. But what Paul is saying, what's he saying? Don't pity me. Man, Philippians, the last thing I want is you to feel sorry for me. Rejoice! And you know why you ought to rejoice and why I'm able to rejoice even in my suffering? is because as I give testimony to Jesus Christ, there are other Christians who are suffering as well, and my testimony of Jesus will encourage them to keep on going. Has that ever happened to you? A parent, somebody in your family, somebody in this faith family, somebody in your small group was going through suffering and they clung to their faith in Jesus Christ. And it not only inspired you, but it encouraged you and motivated you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Listen, God is giving you an opportunity in your suffering to encourage others and give a testimony to those who have never believed. But you won't view your suffering that way if you're not committed. Three quick things. i got to move on because I have like two more points. But this is what happens when I'm gone for two weeks. All right? It's like every thought I've ever had comes out in a sermon. It's not always a good thing. But three misconceptions that we often have about suffering, and then we'll keep moving through the text. Uh, but, but I've had people come to me and say, this part really helped me. Three myths about suffering in the Christian life is this. Number one is that we suffer because we lack faith. In other words, a myth is you're suffering because you didn't have enough faith. You hear this in like the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, word of faith movement. The idea is simply this. If you would simply believe enough, you would never suffer. I just want to know how Paul would respond to that. I just I would buy a front row ticket just to see Paul's response to somebody preaching that message. Oh, you just don't have enough faith or you wouldn't be suffering. What are you talking about? It's my faith that got me in the prison. So be encouraged in this. Your suffering is not a reflection of your lack of faith. Number two, 
Another myth is that suffering is because God is getting back at you. Suffering is because God is getting back at you. In other words, have you ever had this kind of default response when you were suffering? What is God like getting back at me for? Or what did I do wrong? Let me tell you why that's anti-gospel. All the punishment you deserve was poured out on Jesus. That's why I'm telling you, non-believer, this is the greatest news in all the world. All the punishment I deserve was poured out on Jesus at the cross. So I can know this. God is not in heaven with a lightning bolt saying, you step out of line. Come on. Step out of line. I'm going to zap you good this time. No. He zapped Jesus because of all my sin so that I can be assured of this. God is not against me. Now that does not mean that there are not consequences for sin. I'm not talking about that. I'm simply saying the suffering that has come into your life is not God's way of punishing you because Christ has taken all the punishment you deserve. Is that freeing for some of you? I hope so. Here's the third one quickly. Is that suffering, a myth, is because you're outside of God's will. Suffering is because you're outside of God's will. And again, the text is saying Paul is convinced he's in God's will. Paul's convinced this is where God wants him. And so suffering that comes into your life is not a sign that you are outside of God's will. This, this final point, we'll move on. Uh, 1976 Summer Olympics. Shun Fujimoto was one of the, the, the best gymnasts for uh, Japan. And in one of his... Um, one of his events, he broke, some of you remember this, he broke his right knee. I mean, if you've ever had something like that happen, you know that is unbelievably painful. And, but he didn't quit. He maybe should have, but he didn't. In fact, the next event he participated in was his best event. It was the rings. And if you know anything about the rings, you're up in the air. And if you're up in the air, that means something else has to happen. You've got to come back to the ground. And he did a triple somersault and landed almost perfectly on that broken knee. He does his quick bow, and you can just tell unbelievable amounts of pain begins to limp off and takes an immediate seat on the bench. Japan ends up getting the gold medal. And they asked him, what made you keep going? And here's what he said. The pain shot through me like a knife. It brought tears to my eyes. But the goal to get a gold medal made all the pain go away. Right here. What's he saying? My commitment was to a gold, not to personal comfort. What's Paul saying? My commitment is to Jesus and the ministry he's called me to do, not my personal comfort. Here's the second thing. Not only is Paul committed to gospel ministry even in personal suffering, he's also committed to gospel ministry in relational conflict. Here's what else Paul has to go through as if 12 through 14 is not enough. Listen to verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy, that is they're jealous, and rivalry, they're, they're trying to compete 
but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to, here it is, afflict me in my imprisonment. So in other words, as if prison prison wasn't enough, (laughs) Paul also has some other Christians who are wanting to add salt to his wound. They want to see him fail. They're jealous of him. They're trying to compete against him. They want to see Paul fail. Now, who are these people? Well, we don't really know, to be honest. But what we do know is they're, they're not false teachers. They're not preaching a false gospel. Because if that were the case, Paul would have very strong words for them. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 2 quickly. He says this, talking about the Judaizers. He says, look out for the dogs. Now, that's not Fifi, all right? The little poodle, right, with shampooed hair and ribbons in her ears, all right? Dogs in Paul's day were very disgusting. So he's not using nice language here. For the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Here's my point real, real quick. When it comes to people who are preaching a false gospel, because the Judaizers were saying to be right with God, you need faith in Jesus and circumcision. You need faith in Jesus and to obey the law of Abraham, right, and the law of Moses. You've got, a, you've got something plus Jesus in the way in which you get saved. And Paul says, I have no room for that whatsoever. Let them be accursed. So what's happening in Philippians 1, it's this. I'm glad you're sitting down because this is going to be profound. Back in Paul's day, and it's not so much true in our day, but historically in Paul's day, Christians didn't get along. It doesn't happen anymore. Um, uh, In any church that I've ever been a part of, Christians have always gotten along. But, But way back during the time of this letter, Some Christians didn't like each other. And there was a group that didn't like Paul. And it's because they didn't like Paul that they wanted to see him lose. They wanted to see him fail. And so they stirred up all kinds of controversy in order to bring him down. You ever know anybody that wanted to bring others down so they could build them up? That's what's happening to Paul. And here's his response. Verse 18. What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Is that not amazing? No cuss words. No calling names. No, can you believe, like, I'm in prison and they're trying to take advantage of me? Like, how dare them treat me so unfairly? What does Paul say? I'm committed to Jesus, which means I'm committed to his ministry, his gospel. And if the gospel's going forward, even through my opponents, I rejoice. Because my commitment isn't to self-advancement, it's gospel advancement. And in that sense, I'm happy that the mission is moving forward. There's a sermon there for every church in America, every church everywhere. 
Do you know why? Last month was 20 years in ministry. And one of the biggest struggles I've had in ministry is watching Christians fight about the wrong things. Paul says, I don't want, they don't like me. They want me to lose. I don't, I'm not going to argue about that. We're not going to waste time on that. Why? Because what I'm committed to is seeing ministry move forward. Could I take just a quick, and it's got to be a quick moment, to say something to our faith family? And this is preventative medicine. We're about to do some things that has caused many a church to split or fracture. You ask any pastor who's ever gone through a building campaign or an expansion, we're moving from one campus to two campuses. Do you know how easy it's going to be in this season of our life together to have all the wrong conversations? Well, what room do I get? And, and I've been here longer. How come they get that? And well, but they're Burnsville and they're Lakeville and, and this and that and all this going forth. And Paul would just say, stop it. What you need to be talking about is rejoicing, whether it's going your way or not going your way, that ministry is moving forward, that gospel is advancing, because at the end of the day, is that not what we're committed to? We're not committed to this group or that group. We're committed to gospel ministry. And if that's moving forward, may the people of God rejoice. I wonder if this season in our church will show us what we're really committed to. Paul says it would be so easy to get caught up in all this conflict, but I refuse. I'm simply going to say praise God. Praise God. Even though I'm actually the one unfairly treated. Nevertheless, praise God. He's committed to gospel ministry in personal suffering. He's committed to gospel ministry in relational conflict. Here's the last one and we're done. I've I, got to wrap it up. Is He's committed to gospel ministry even in physical uncertainty. He's committed to gospel ministry even in physical uncertainty. I don't know what you do with a guy like this. Look at verse 19. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Here's the phrase to underline, whether by life or by death. Now, I, here at Berean, we're all about preaching the Bible. I'm trying to get you in the text. What does the text say? And here's what Paul is saying. On one hand, I'm dealing with prison. But I rejoice. I mean, they chain guards to me, and it's an opportunity to witness. Uh, I have enemies and detractors who want to see me lose, but I rejoice because my commitment is to gospel ministry. And what's the third one? You ready? I don't know if I'm going to live or die. The verdict of my trial may be death. Philippians, this may be the last letter you ever receive from me. But that's okay. It doesn't matter. Here's why. Verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and die is gain. What are you going to do with this guy? Do, do you see the point? The point is this. It doesn't matter even if I die. Because if I live, more ministry. If I die, Jesus. 
And that's the kind of freedom your life gets when you're committed, when you're all in with Jesus Christ. Paul's commitment, in summary, changed the way he viewed his suffering, his conflict, and even his own death because he saw it all through the lens of ministry. And that's not surprising given the fact that he is a follower of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is Jesus that said in John chapter 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Who said in John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The one who in the garden of Gethsemane said, not my will, but yours. You see, it was through personal suffering, relational conflict, and physical death that Jesus proved his obedience and commitment to what? Doing what the Father had sent him to do. Right here. And we are followers of Christ. So, what are you committed to? There's something in your life demanding commitment. To be healthy, that's awesome. To be really good at your job, go for it. To have a healthy relationship, fantastic. But what about your relationship with grace? What about your relationship with Christ? Maybe this morning it's time to stop dating. And it's time to commit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. Thank you again that we, we proclaim this not in any kind of, of legalistic way. This is not, we want to be committed so we can be better Christians. We want to be committed so that we can earn your favor and your love. Oh, all that has already been given freely. We want to be committed because our life has been changed. We, we want to grow in our commitment to you because we love you. And in you there is freedom and joy. And I just want to pray for those here today who if they were to take an honest evaluation of their life right now, they've been half-hearted. They've tried to get by with just as little as possible. And that is not what the Christian life is about. I pray this morning that they would make an honest, sincere commitment to take up their cross, to follow you, and that their life would not just, that you would not just be a part of it, but you would be the very expression of it. That Christ would be our life. Do that work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.